Hey there, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Jones. On this podcast, we go in depth with leading experts from all walks of life to understand and improve your health and well being. Intermittent fasting is a hot topic, especially for women. And today I have leading expert and friend, Cynthia Thurlow, to answer all of your questions. Cynthia is a nurse practitioner, CEO, and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. She's an international speaker with over 9.6 million views on her second TEDx talk titled Intermittent Fasting, Transformational Technique. With over 20 years experience in health and wellness and the host of her own successful educational podcast, she now has a newly released book called Intermittent Fasting Transformation. It's a 45-day program for women to understand fasting, lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. Cynthia and I have talked a lot over the years about women's health, hormones, and intermittent fasting. So it was an absolute pleasure to have her on today and go through everything from the basics to fasting to the myths and misconceptions you see all over social media. Here's a clip from today's conversation. Well, I think a lot of women come to intermittent fasting out of curiosity. They want to change body composition. They want to lose weight. But really, the really cool things about fasting are beneath the surface. So we know that we tap into this process called autophagy. It's this waste and recycling process in the body. So we get rid of diseased mitochondria and organelles and proteins that are misfolded. Our body is able to literally take out the trash. So that's A number one. And I think given the past two years, we need all the help we can get in terms of getting rid of getting rid of things we don't need. Number two, I think about the improvements in biophysical markers. And so it could be blood pressure. It can be uh, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, triglycerides, HDL, uric acid. I mean, all these biophysical markers that are so instrumental in metabolic health, you know, that we've seen significant improvements. That's just a small taste of the amazing show that we have for you today. Hey, before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. And if you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you are placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. And Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 25 different labs in one single place. Thank goodness, no need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. So if you are a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create a free account today. Now, let's get on with the show. Cynthia, oh my goodness, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to joining you. Uh, well, I'm super excited. One, just to have you on and because I enjoy talking to you every time we do. And two, because I honestly cannot wait for the world to get your book. So let's do this. <laughs> let's talk about a super hot topic known as intermittent fasting, especially as it relates to women. Yeah, no, it's definitely a topic that is obviously near and dear to my heart, but one that I feel like across social media, there's so much fear mongering. I don't know if it's just completely timely, but it almost makes me a little angry and upset. So I'm glad that we're having this conversation to kind of set the record straight about how women fast and why fasting is a good idea for most women and how to do it safely, as opposed to 
leaning into that negative kind of bias that I've been seeing quite a bit of. And we're definitely going to talk about that. That is one of my questions. And I have been telling a number of our practitioner friends or my practitioner friends, I said, you know, Cynthia Thurlow has a book coming out on intermittent fasting. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. I need a resource that I can just hand my patients and say, just read this, just read this. This is what you need to understand. So before we get started, why don't you tell people who you are, your background, what you stand for? So you know who we're talking to. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of a long journey. I've been a nurse practitioner for more than 20 years and my background started in ER medicine. So I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And then heading into cardiology was just a natural extension of the desire to take care of medically complex patients. And I loved doing that for a long time. And then I became a parent. And when I had my oldest son, who, which is hard to believe he'll be 17 in August, when he was four months old, he had horrible eczema and he was being exclusively breastfed. And I kept asking the pediatrician, is it something I'm eating? Because I clearly, it made sense to me. Like maybe it's something I'm eating that's irritating his skin. And I was like, no, no, he's fine. Sent me home with some steroids. And after it was many, many months of this, I finally said, I want to see the allergist because I want to make sure I'm not giving him something that's making him, making his eczema worse. And so I was as surprised as the next person to find that my son had life-threatening food allergies. And I was sent home with the instructions of pray and carry an EpiPen. And that started my journey into looking more carefully and thoughtfully at the processed food industry, nutrition, and obviously in hospital-based cardiology, we're not really worried about food. And maybe in that clinic, we were talking to our patients about the interrelationship But certainly back then, that's when we were telling our patients that saturated fat was bad and that fats were evil. And here, take this Brummel and Brown or this Smart Balance or work on those heart healthy grains. And I can't think of worse nutritional advice to give a patient, especially one who has established cardiovascular disease and very likely is diabetic. And so fast forward a few more years, I had another child and I started getting kind of listless. I love the challenges of cardiology and obviously loved being a nurse practitioner but I just felt like I was meant to do something else. So initially I started a doctoral program, which I hated. And then I did a wellness coaching program, which was kind of like, meh. And then I read two books. I read a book called The Unhealthy Truth by Robin O'Brien. And then later read a book called Eat the Yolks. And I don't even remember the lovely author's name, but I reached out to her and said, your book is completely contrary to everything I ever learned about nutrition, but it is so aligned with what I think is correct, but I'd love to know where you got your training. And so off I went to do a functional nutrition program. And that was kind of the beginning of the end of working in traditional allopathic medicine for me personally. And I woke up one day, probably a few years later. And at that point I was in perimenopause, but hadn't realized it. I was doing everything wrong. I was too intense exercise, too restrictive of a diet, lots of stress. Remember the cardiology job, husband who traveled, kids were really young and no one had ever prepared me for what this was, not my GYN, not my girlfriends, not my mom, no one. And so I hit the wall. And then I started to really think very thoughtfully about is this type of lifestyle what I want? I'm dealing super high stress job. I'm exhausted. I can't sleep. I'm gaining weight. I'm frustrated. And so from there in my typical, like I'm very analytical. And so from my perspective, I was like, what do I need to do differently? And so that kind of led me to the idea of intermittent fasting. I read Jason Fung's book. I then had the courage to say, okay, if this is a physician who obviously has done his research and is obviously incredibly knowledgeable, this sounds like a good idea for me. 
And so I started fasting and within a week, I felt so much better, so much more mentally clear that it started to kind of, I use the term bleed, but it, it really led to discussions I had with patients. And by that point, I was kind of had this side gig working on. And then eventually I got to a point where I couldn't write another prescription. And so I left clinical cardiology without a business plan. I don't recommend <laughs> that. <laughs> no business plan. Talk about stress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Took a leap of faith. I was like, I'm going to be successful. And then my husband was like, what? What are you talking about? And so I left clinical cardiology in, on April 1st, 2016 and became an entrepreneur. And so I almost instantaneously started attracting a particular type of woman. It was exactly the woman that I was, someone who felt that their needs were really not being met. They did not have anticipatory guidance about middle age. They certainly weren't told what to expect. And the irony is around that time, I happened to first day of my period, I've been telling my GYM, my periods are very heavy. First day of my period, it's my annual exam. And I go in and she goes, oh my gosh, your period is so heavy. And I was like, I told you. And she said, we can fix this. Option number one, synthetic hormones. Option number two, an IUD. Option number three, we'll do an ablation. Or if you don't even want to deal with anything, we'll just do a hysterectomy. And I was like, time out, no. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, and no. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, I think I'm going to say no to all. And she was completely astounded. She's like, why would you want to walk around with your cycle being that heavy? And I said, there have to be other options. And so it just continued to further validate why we need to be having these conversations with women way before they hit perimenopause. And so I took that leap and then it really turned into group programs and one-on-one coaching. And then in 2018, I decided as an introvert that I needed to do something that would challenge me further. And I said, okay, I want to do a TED talk. And my husband's like, what? And I said, I think doing a TED talk would be a really good challenging thing for me to do. Because to get up in front of a room of people and execute a talk and have to do it from memory sounded kind of scary. And so the rest is history. I did a talk in December of 2018 on perimenopause, was completely embarrassed the entire time, which is why we have to be talking to everyone about middle age, because there should be no shame. There should be no embarrassment. I was completely embarrassed. And then I got off the stage. And I was like, that was fantastic. I, now I need to talk about it. And then I did a second talk in... March of 2019 about intermittent fasting and women. And so that's probably what most people know me for, but that's, that's in a nutshell, you know, over 20 plus years of of my work experience and life experience has really gotten me to where I am today, which is really positioning women to feel inspired, empowered, and educated to live their best lives. Because if we listen to conventional wisdom, you're North of 40, you're all washed up, you're irrelevant, you're invisible, you're not important anymore. And I'd be the first person to say, I think we really have to change the narrative so that women understand that every stage of our life can be wonderful. It doesn't have to just be under a certain age threshold. It should be throughout our lifetime. We live high quality lives. Here, here, I, for those who are listening and maybe not watching on video, I'm like nodding my head the whole time. <laughs> like, yes, yes, absolutely. And you and I've had multiple conversations about that is women transition into perimenopause. They, first of all, don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. It's not very much, very well talked about, although it's that education is gaining traction, thankfully, due to educators like yourself. Mm-hmm. But I also love that your whole story is extremely relatable to so many women. So many women are like, I am right there with you. I completely understand. I was reading the, of course, the when I was reading the intro of your book, I was like, oh yeah, a lot of women come to me, write me in the DMs, in the comments, and I'm sure you as well. And mm-hmm. they're like, I have no guidance. I was told 
welcome to your 40s or welcome to your early Mm -hmm. 50s. This is common, Mm -hmm. right? So good luck. The best we can do is synthetic hormones, Mm -hmm. maybe a hysterectomy if you're really hating life, an antidepressant and and best of luck. Welcome to the transition. And like I said, you and I've talked about that. That's crap. So I can't wait to dig in here. So that we're all on the same plane, can you explain what is intermittent fasting? (laughs) What is intermittent fasting? Because I had had a conversation with somebody the other day who was arguing with me and I said, oh, you're confusing calorie restriction with intermittent fasting. And then of course there's longer fasting, Mm -hmm. shorter fasting. So can you sort of go through these so everybody knows what these terms actually mean? Yeah, no, and it's a great question. I think the easiest way to explain intermittent fasting is you're eating less often. That's really as simplistic as it is. You're not starving yourself. It's a very important distinction. I remind people that when people are are new at fasting, they may have much different fasting and feeding windows than an experienced faster. And so I think a good litmus test is to aim for a 16-8, meaning you go from a period of time, maybe you don't eat from the time you finish dinner at six o'clock at night until you eat breakfast the following day at 8 a.m., And you've already got 14 hours fasted. So really, in essence, a lot of time of when you're sleeping is incorporated into that fasting window. So it's not nearly as terrifying as it sounds. And so I I teach people to kind of open, continue to open up that window. And the benefits with fasting are really highly dependent on the amount of time spent not eating. Mm. And this Mm -hmm. is important. So sometimes people get very granular and they want to get very nuanced. And so I say, listen, if someone's new to fasting, they're a standard American diet and they're a couch potato, 12 hours of not eating is probably an overwhelming amount of time because we've conditioned our patients to eat to quote unquote, stoke our metabolism. And the breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And so people have grown up with that kind of mindset and it's very hard. You know, we talk about cognitive dissonance as applies to a lot of things these days, but it also applies to this nutritional dogma. And so when I'm initially talking to someone, we just say, okay, digestive rest, we're going to not eat from six o'clock at night till six o'clock in the morning. And for a lot of people, that's very overwhelming to do. There was a great study that came out last year about from Sacha and Panda's group talking about meal frequency. And they had an app in the phone. So it made it very easy for people to participate. And we start looking at the average person, how frequently they're consuming food or drinking sugary beverages anywhere from six to 10 times a day. And that's like the average person. So there are more, there are many people doing much more than that. But back to your original question, we're talking about different opportunities in which to fast. There's like beginning, I always say, put the training wheels on. So there's beginning fasting. And then you can slowly have, you can play around with those fasting windows might be 16 hours, 18 hours, 20. There's OMAD, which is one meal a day. There are 24 hour fasts, 30 hour fasts, three to five day fasts. But ultimately it's really determined by what are your goals? Mm -hmm. Because for some people, they want to just have digestive rest and that's great. And there are certain times, for example, in a woman's cycle, where she should not do more than 12 or 13 hours without eating. And that's an important distinction to make. So there's still benefits depending on how long you are fasting, but a good rule of thumb is to do is to aim for a 16 hour fast, because we know that that's a point at which we get a lot of upregulation and specific processes that go on in the body. It's a good benchmark to start from, but much like anything, we don't do the same exercise every day. We don't eat the same foods every day. Once you are fat adapted, once you're at a point where your body is able to be more metabolically flexible, then you can play around with those fasting windows. And I think that's when things really get very exciting. But a big differentiator between fasting and caloric restriction is it's not about calories. That's one of the greatest 
misnomers. And I feel very strongly there's a lot of people who believe in the hormone hypothesis as it pertains to weight gain versus calorie restriction. I am very much on the hormone camp, as I know you are as well, that the reason why we either can or cannot lose weight largely is mitigated by hormonal imbalances versus caloric restriction, because our bodies are far more sophisticated than we are giving them credit for. If we think it's just about a unit of calorie of measurement, which is all that a calorie is, and it's not to suggest that calories are per se not important, but it is not the benchmark for which we should utilize as the bigger distinction. And so I think that fasting is eating less often. That's really the best way to think about it. I find the word fasting sometimes can be triggering. So if I see, let's just eat less often, people go, okay, I can do that. Yeah. Well, especially in that study, which is really shocking to me is that people don't realize those quick bites, finishing the little half of your child's sandwich, having that couple sips of kombucha, having a handful of crackers as you walk through the kitchen. If you've got chocolate sitting on your desk, it's on top of if you do breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's all of, you may think, oh, I don't eat that often. I have mm-hmm. one, I have a breakfast, I have a lunch, I have a dinner. And then you forget like, oh, right. But I do eat that like half a smoothie and I, but I divide it up and I absolutely have that coffee drink that I sip on over the course of four hours. And I absolutely finish off my kid's plate. And it's the little things over mm-hmm. time that's constantly affecting, well, everything, <laughs> digestion, yeah. glucose, insulin, yeah. a lot of things. And so I love that you say that. So before we go further, though, I do want to sort of understand like who shouldn't do intermittent fasting. So before we get into like the benefits and, you know, we're going to talk about the women's cycle and we're going to talk about all these myths that come with intermittent fasting. Who do you think shouldn't consider intermittent fasting? Who's a bad candidate? Well, first and foremost, if you have a disordered relationship with food, so binge eating, anorexia, bulimia, unless here's my caveat because I have angry DMs that come after me about this, unless you are working with a fully qualified eating disorder specialist and they have decided with you that you are in a position to be able to participate with intermittent fasting and not trigger your eating disorder, I think that as a rule, that's those individuals should really avoid fasting. I think anyone that's just been hospitalized, that's underweight, someone who's just been chronically, when I say chronically ill, someone who's unstable, maybe you're getting getting medications, regulated very frequently, maybe you're a brittle diabetic or you're at a point where you have significant chronic health issues. Digestive rest is probably reasonable beyond that. You don't want to put additional stress on the body. I think about children. I get a lot Mm -hmm. of questions about children and teenagers. And I'm like, if you're still growing, please don't restrict the macronutrients you're providing your child with. And, And there's, I think there's so many different strategies to use with obese, overweight, children and teens, it could be changing their macronutrient profile without restricting right. the time frame in which they eat. And then lastly, I would say, I'm not a fan of fasting for breastfeeding or pregnant women. There's a lot of good research to support this. I do see quite a few people on social media that proudly talk about fasting throughout a pregnancy or fasting while they're breastfeeding. This is really the time you're either growing a human or you're feeding a human. And I can't think of a time when you should be restricting your food intake that could adversely impact said growing or feeding human. Right. And so I I think it's one of the few times that women get a little bit of a break in terms of, I always say like, when I was breastfeeding, I could eat like a truck driver or I could eat like a quarterback or a football person. And so I actually marveled at how much food I could consume and create breast milk. And so for me, the thought of restricting the time frame in which I ate would have just been so foreign to me. So those are the big ones. Obviously there are a lot of nuances 
But those are things specific to women that I usually say, these are things I want to be really careful about. And I'm very honest. I talk about how I have a 14 year old who is a competitive swimmer and does not like to eat breakfast and I don't force him to. But when he eats, the kid eats two big lunches, two big dinners. And I was having a conversation with the pediatrician. I was like, he crams an entire day's worth of meals into like an eight hour compressed window. And I said, I'm, he's flourishing. He's doing well. But as a rule, I don't recommend fasting for teenagers. And so we could talk secondarily about just how some people naturally just are not hungry in the morning. And I think you should really lean into that. You shouldn't feel obligated to eat when you're not hungry. And I also love that you put the caveat on there too, that unless you're working with somebody who really understands this and and feels that intermittent fat, you both have come to the decision intermittent fasting is good for you. Because I find what happens is people hear about it, they read about it, they do a little bit of research, and then they decide they're going to try it or jump in without fully understanding all the different facets. Or if somebody is breastfeeding and they're like, oh my gosh, I have, I'm one of the women who hasn't lost weight breastfeeding, I'm going to start intermittent fasting. It doesn't mean necessarily that you can't or shouldn't, but if you have no idea what you're doing, like please seek out somebody who at least can help guide you through if it's the right thing for you. And the same with, I love that you say that you and I've had other, lots of conversations around disordered eating given histories. And so I think that is really important because Mm -hmm. again, I've seen it in your comments. I've seen it in my comments where people are angry or they push back and I'm like, wait, hold on. First of all, it's social media. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Second of all, work with somebody, work with somebody, decide if it is the right thing for you as a general rule. It's, Mm -hmm. these are the reasons it's not recommended but it doesn't mean it's set in stone and don't just decide willy nilly with no education about it. You're just going to jump in and try it. Well, and I I think it's ultimately, I I know we come from the same place. We want women to be successful. And I I sometimes will find if I'm, I'm teaching in a group program and someone's messaging my team and asking for guidance, I can almost tell the people that have got those tendencies towards leaning towards an eating disorder, because they're, Mm -hmm. it's enough for me to add. The next question is, have you ever been diagnosed or treated Mm -hmm. for X? Mm -hmm. And I've had some instances where I've just really recommended that people not fast. I'm like, I don't want to just take your money. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is about. This is really about teaching and educating you, but I don't think you're healed enough to be able to properly participate. And I I want you to be successful in, in whatever it is that you decide to do, but I don't think this is the right program. Right, right. No, I agree. And I love that. So on the flip side, what are the benefits? (laughs) Why do we do intermittent fasting? (laughs) What are the good things? Exactly. Well, I think a lot of women come to intermittent fasting out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. They want to change body composition. They want to lose weight. But really the really cool things about fasting are beneath the surface. So we know that we tap into this process called autophagy. It's this waste and recycling process in the body. So we get rid of disease mitochondria and organelles and proteins that are misfolded, our body is able to literally take out the trash. So that's a number one. And I think given the past two years, we need all the help we can get in terms of getting rid of getting rid of things we don't need. Number two, I think about the improvements in biophysical markers. And so it could be blood pressure. It can be uh, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, triglycerides, HDL, uric acid. I mean, all these biophysical markers that are so instrumental in metabolic health, you know, that we've seen significant improvements. I think about the fact that the mental clarity piece, which is a direct reflection of lowered insulin levels and the facilitation of breakdown of fatty acids with diffusion across the blood brain barrier. And this particular type of ketone beta hydroxybutyrate, 
loves the brain. And so our brains, which is surprising, people assume our brains love sugar. Our brains actually love fat as a fuel source. So you get tremendous mental clarity. I think about just the reduction in neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. A lot of women probably already know that we are largely protected from a lot of cognitive disorders until we go into menopause. And I think on a lot of levels, when we talk about insulin sensitivity and estrogen and think about the byproduct of how that impacts the brain, knowing that we're going to have greater insulin sensitivity if we're fasting and how important that is for brain health. Also reductions in specific types of cancers. I know for a lot of people, this is the thing that gets them motivated and a reduction in inflammation and oxidative stress. I have so many people that have said that, you know, their joints stopped aching, they slept better. And they always say like, it started with the weight loss and that was all awesome. But then I felt so good. And then insert whatever it is that they found. But those are the, for me, the bigger benefits that I generally find women, once they start the process of fasting and they start feeling so much better, it just further reinforces the good behavior, meaning that they continue to feel the benefits, right? Even beyond just the physical benefits. I always say the non-scale victories are super important, but like, what are some of the other things that improve for you? The, The other thing that I forgot to mention was that for a lot of women, they have hot flashes that get a whole lot better. And, and ladies, you can get hot flashes in perimenopause and menopause. It's not like they're just for menopausal women, largely because of the byproduct of improvement in blood sugar regulation. And so that for me is huge. In fact, this last group that just went through one of my group programs, that was the resounding comments when we were like, I didn't know I could be in menopause or perimenopause and not have hot flashes. And I didn't realize it was all tied up in how frequently I was eating. Wow. So I think that's another huge win because we know like vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes can be tremendously debilitating for women. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was talking to an interventional cardiologist, Dr. Saltiel, she was saying how those vasomotor symptoms especially as we get older, having give us an increased risk for heart disease. No good. Which is no good. Yeah. Which you, which you also know. And so it, does it matter all those benefits? Does it matter if you are a 12 hour intermittent faster, 14, 16, the longer you do the, is there, there like boxes get checked as you go? <laughs> well, like autophagy is a good one. A lot of people get fixated on longer is better. So yes, mm. we know you get up regulation and autophagy, the longer you fast, but we know, you know, based on study research, 16 hours seems to be the sweet spot, but I always encourage people like, I don't want you to suffer yeah. to get to 16 hours. Just say, okay, now I have autophagy. I, I think it's much like mTOR. It's they're kind of balance each other out throughout our day. And so I think it's important for people to understand, like if you want more digestive rest, if you want stem cell activation, if you want some of those longevity telomere activation or improvement, you have to fast longer, but you don't start there. So it's always with the context of, are you doing a longer fast to plateau bust? Are you doing a longer fast because you want to impact longevity? Are you doing a longer fast because you want some stem cell activation? Like being very clear about what you want. Cause I think some people just think longer is better. Fasting longer is better and anything less than that is not good. And I remind people that our bodies are so sophisticated. They desire much like you have a dog, I have dogs. My dogs like to be challenged. Intellectually, they like to be challenged. Our bodies like to be challenged. You're that hormesis, the whole hormetic stress. And I remind mm-hmm. people that it's the right amount of stress in the right, mind, at, in the right amount at the right time and how our bodies are the same way. So it might be that you maybe you do one longer fast a week or maybe you do it once a month. Or if you're still in peak fertile years, you might do them less frequently because your body is just exquisitely more attuned to 
macronutrient changes much more so than a menopausal woman. Right. And so I think that I love the distinction because a lot of people, they get, they get very granular. They're like, tell me exactly when autophagy kicks in. And I always say like longer is better, but 16 to 18 hours is probably a good like point to leverage. Obviously when people get sick, as an example, like someone was messaging me, they, they must have like a virus, you know, upper respiratory infection. And like, I don't feel like eating. I said, then listen to your body. If you don't feel yeah. like eating, just stay hydrated, have some electrolytes, rest. That's what your body's asking for. And it's because your body is innately trying to upregulate, get rid of, take out the garbage, upregulate autophagy so that you can get better faster. I get asked one about intermittent fasting for me personally. They're like, do you do intermittent fasting? And I always say often, yes, but I also listen to my body first. So mm-hmm. if I happen to wake up hungry, like hungry, hungry, I eat. I'm not like, oh no, I have to get to 16 hours so that my autophagy can kick in. I, I can take out the trash. If I wake up hungry, it's in everybody's best interest. <laughs> if I eat. <laughs> but it's important. Yeah. It's so important. I, I think yesterday I did like an Insta story and I was saying, you know, I've been lifting more and I woke up, I was really hungry when I woke up and I went to the gym and I came home and I was like, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm going to break my fast. And so I did an Insta story and I got all these DMs like you break your fast that early. I was like, I was hungry. Yeah. I had lifted. I decided that I didn't need to go 17, 18 hours. I'm going to go 15 hours, 14 hours, whatever it was. I don't even know how many hours I fasted. But the point is, it's meant to be flexible. And I think it's this very reductionistic thinking that we have to be rigid and we have to be like, we have to do it the same way every day. And I remind people, once you have learned the basics, then you can experiment. And I'm glad that you listen to your body as well. And we shouldn't have to apologize for it either. Like some people feel like they have to announce it to the world. Today... I was not able to fast it. And I'm like, okay, where are you in your cycle? That's the other thing. Like, where are you in your cycle? Because if it's two days before your period, well, you might not have the ability to go 18 hours, nor should you push your body that hard. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Sleep, stress, how late did you stay up the night? But all those things affect how you do the next day. And like I said, it's if you wake up hungry, it might be in your best interest or those around you not to be hangry and to just <laughs> hit the reset button and start over the next day. Exactly. I get this question a lot. It's also in your book. Does intermittent fasting, quote, put you into starvation mode? No, no. <laughs> and I think there's an important distinction. Fasting is choosing to eat within a specific time frame. Mm-hmm. Starvation is choosing not to eat. Yeah. That's a very, very important distinction. The other thing is when you're in a non-fed state, your body's upregulating all these compensatory mechanisms. So. I remind people that the autophagy piece, growth hormone, all these things that happen, norepinephrine, I mean, all these neurochemicals in the body that are designed to, once you've been fat, once you're metabolically flexible, Mm -hmm. designed to ensure that you're not like hungry all the time, that you not, it's not that you're suppressing the cues that your body's just gotten more efficient with saying, Hey, there's no food in my stomach. So that means I have to tap into some fat stores. Okay. I'm going to free up those fatty acids and ketones. I'm going to give myself some glycogen. I'm, I'm doing really good. Like I'm good right now. Yeah. As opposed to starvation, which is choosing not to eat period. That is a choice is very, very different. And I think that on a lot of levels, and I, I had to actually do a rebuttal the other day to a, an article that came out where there was a, a registered dietitian who was saying that people that intermittent fast, they're, they're dysregulating their blood sugar and they're going to get sick. And I mean, all this fear mongering stuff. And so I thought to myself, I think if we had, if we explain to people that when your body is efficient at using fuel, you don't have to eat frequently when your body is efficient in using fuel, it is able to have sustained energy. You're not going to have an energy slump. You're going to be able to lose weight more easily. You're not going to be hangry. 
And so I think that's such an important distinction as opposed to saying starvation, which of course you're going to be miserable because you're choosing fully to not participate in eating, hopefully for a good reason, if it's just experimentation. Right. I think that's an important distinction to make. And the other thing that happens, and I've been very transparent about this three years ago, I was in the hospital. I lost 15 pounds in a week because my body was catabolizing my muscle. It was going in like Pac-Man and breaking my muscle down to use as fuel because I was not able to eat because I was so sick. And so I remind people like that's starvation because I was sick Mm -hmm. and what your body does under those, that threat or that level of illness is it goes in and it'll actually break down body parts. In my case, muscle, it'll break it down. So you'll have a fuel source. And that is such a different kind of methodology and and thought process. So I'm I'm glad that you asked that question because it's one that I think is really important for people to understand that there's definitely a distinction. And you see it on social media. And actually my next question is around muscle because the other two big things that I see myth busting wise are, well, I don't intermittent fast because I don't want to muscle waste and I don't intermittent fast because I'm afraid it's going to slow down my thyroid. I see those two in the average person, not a hospitalized person, right? as in your case, but right. in an average person well enough to comment in the DMs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If they're on Instagram, they're they're obviously well enough to. (laughs) They're not probably not in the hospital. Very ill. Well, I mean, there's a couple things. Muscle protein synthesis is largely mitigated by high quality animal based protein consumption and adequate stimulus. So lifting heavy weights. And then along with that is high quality sleep. And so I, I remind people that kind of the old methodology, you've got to eat immediately before and after exercise. And no, your body takes into account all the food you've eaten within a 24 hour period of time. And so I I think it's important for people to understand you can build muscle and fast. However, here's the caveat. You have to hit your protein macros. You got to lift heavy enough weights and you got to sleep and you have to fast for your cycle. I think that's an important distinction. I certainly have been able to build muscle while fasted. So I think when people are getting enough animal-based protein. And and most women are not. Mm -hmm. So I say, I think the average woman's probably doing 50 or 60 grams a day, which is not nearly enough. You really need to be pushing hundred grams a day or more. You know, the other pieces you get peaks of growth hormone in a fasted state, especially at night. So that's why the high quality sleep is so important. We get that first peak of growth hormone, I believe around 1am if memory serves me correctly. And then the other piece, I think that there's so much that goes into thyroid function. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, if you're overdoing anything, overdoing the exercise, over restricting food intake, not eating often enough, not sleeping, any stressor is going to stress that thyroid gland. And I don't think you can shake a hand, a finger and say, oh, it's definitely because of fasting. I find that a lot of people who have thrashed thyroids are the same people who overdo everything else. Like they're extremists. And it's not mm-hmm. a criticism, it's just an observation. They're extremists. They you know, if a little bit of exercise is good, then they have to do a lot of exercise. And same thing with if they're, if a little bit of, if not, if not eating a lot of carbs is good, then no carbs is better. And so it's that kind of reductionistic thinking that in many ways, I think gets people into trouble. I mean, for full transparency, I've had a thyroid issue probably since perimenopause started, and I've been able to successfully continue to fast, but I also know myself and know that I know my body will tell me when I'm overdoing it. Like mm-hmm. you can get more tired. Like, how's your energy? How's your sleep? What do you, how do you feel after you exercise? I mean, I think we have to, and I know you do a great job of this. We have to continue to teach women that we need to check in with ourselves. And it's all those lifestyle pieces. Like if your hair is falling out and you sleep terribly 
and you're not feeling well and you're significantly acutely hypothyroid or at the extremes, then you, it's probably not a beneficial stressor to add to your stress bucket. However, if you're sleeping well, you're leaning into the right types of exercise, you've got a nutrient dense whole foods diet without restriction, Mm -hmm. then fasting might be a good idea for you. Yeah. But it's always with the context of checking in with yourself and really leaning into what is your body telling you? I mean, these are not the things I was taught as an NP student (laughs) years ago, but I've just learned over time what are the markers? What are the objective things that you can say to yourself? Like, what's my energy like? Did I sleep well? I mean, super simple stuff. You don't have to have an internal dialogue with yourself. You can just kind of say, I get up in the morning, or if you really want to biohack it, look at your aura ring. Like I mm-hmm. love that my aura ring always, always correlates with my sleep quality. So if I get up in the morning, good example, I did hot yoga last night for an hour. I don't recommend doing that before bed, but it was just an experiment. And even though I felt good when I got up, my resting heart rate was up all night, which it normally is not. And I said, oh, I hadn't fully recovered. Even though I drank 40 ounces of water with electrolytes. I did all the right things. And I said to my husband, okay, the experiment is done. I don't need to do 7.15 a.m. or 7.15 p.m. hot yoga. That was not a good idea. I need to do it earlier in the day, but just kind of checking in with yourself. And today I didn't go to the gym because... My aura ring was barking at me and saying, yep. you know, your sleep quality was in the toilet because your resting heart rate was up. So I think you can absolutely fast with thyroid issues, provided that your thyroid medication is stable, provided that you're checking in with yourself. I think it's really, it does women a disservice to suggest that fasting is harmful because it's really all an N of one. Like each yep. one of us are individuals. And so there are some people that don't do well with fasting have thyroid problems. There are plenty of people who do just fine with fasting that have thyroid problems. It really depends on the individual. Which is why we love individualized, personalized medicine as best that we can, right? Mm -hmm. And I know that this isn't a scientific study, but I do appreciate in the comments of social media when women stand up and say that, right? Mm -hmm. If somebody says, I don't intermittent fast or whatever it is, but we're talking about intermittent fast. Mm -hmm. I don't do that because I have a thyroid problem. And then under it, the sub comments, the replies oftentimes are several who say, well, I have a thyroid problem and I love intermittent fasting. It's made a world of difference for me. And it just goes to show that individualization. So the person who maybe says, I don't do it, maybe they shouldn't do it. Maybe right. they just like you said, maybe if they checked in with themselves and they just feel inherently like, God, I could never do that. That would set me over the edge. Yeah. Good. Um, don't do it then. And then the commenters who say, well, I actually do intermittent fasting with a thyroid, with a hypothyroid. I feel great. I'm doing great. I've done it a year, two years, whatever. Good for them too, right? I'm clapping both of them. I'm I'm like, fantastic. If you know that about yourself, then hallelujah. But it is, I love, it's like not one size fits all. It is, right, we have to take into account. But I do want to comment about the protein part because I am guilty. I was, I was guilty of the not enough protein and I didn't know it. I thought I was eating plenty of protein. I do eat animal. I know that's going to upset a lot of the vegans and vegetarians. I fully understand And with all due respect to them, it just works for me. Mm -hmm. And I, listening to you over time, being just like a tiny smidge bit older than me, and then listening to Dr. Stacey Sims, who wrote the book, Roar, Women Are Not Small Men. And she's also a smidge older than me. And she said, you need to get your protein up as you head into perimenopause, as you hit your 40s, you're not getting enough protein. And she, you both explain why. And I thought, fine, okay, I will add in more animal-based protein. And OMG, let me tell you, it made me feel so much better. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? My, just the, my musculature was better. My energy was better. My strength was better. I just, I felt less puffy. I didn't realize I was puffy. 
until I added, for some reason, added in more protein. And I do recognize that now being, I'm 40, I'll be 45 in June. Mm -hmm. And well, since this podcast will be around for a while, I'll be 45 in June of 2022, just in case someone's (laughs) listening way later. And so I, once I, I added in a lot more protein over the last, I don't know, four or five months and that you're right. You are spot on. That's made a world of difference for me anyhow. Yeah. Well, and I think for a lot of women, we've been conditioned to believe, you know, the heart healthy grains and all these other things. And I just think as women get older, Mm -hmm. perimenopause, menopause, we start to lose some insulin sensitivity. We lose some musculature. We develop some sarcopenia. It's not a matter of if, but when. Yeah. And so if we really think about what muscles are, they are their currency, their currency for our health. And so I remind people all the time as we're losing muscle, we are losing insulin sensitivity and think of muscles as glucose reservoirs. I mean, I have a a girlfriend right now who's diagnosed with diabetes and she was so mad that I suggested she start doing some body weight exercise. And she's like, I hate it. I absolutely hate it. And I said, well, think about what we need to be doing. We need to build some muscle. We need to reinforce that insulin sensitivity piece. And I think that's so critically important. And I just think the satiety from protein is unlike anything else you'll get. And so on a lot of levels that shuts people's appetite off. It's like, okay, I'm full. I'm done. I don't want to go look for cookies or candy or anything else, salty chips. I'm just done. I feel really satiated. And that isn't really, I think that's a really empowering feeling. Right. And it it does, I found, I don't know how you, with other, your patients, but it does, it's not overnight. It's not like I added in more animal protein on a Monday and by Tuesday I was not craving chocolate. Like that did not happen, (laughs) but it was over time that it was very helpful. Absolutely. And I think it's, yeah. if you're doing 60 now, do 65. If you're doing 70, do 75. So really aiming, Mm -hmm. I think I pigeonholed Dr. Gabrielle line and said, okay, what's the least, like what, what should everyone be aiming for? And so she said hundred grams. So I usually say aiming for hundred grams, it really, you really want to just keep pushing that lever up Mm -hmm. because I'm sure, you know, during your training, just like I did, I can't tell you how many 50 plus year olds, I mean, you don't even have to be that old who had lost muscle mass and their legs, they could barely get off the commode. And I thought to myself, heck, I don't want to be that person. Right. So it's the loss of muscle mass can really impact your activities of daily living. And so obviously we don't want any of any of your listeners to go through that. So definitely know that protein intake is critically important for us. And then how do you adjust intermittent fasting for those of us who are still cycling? Does it, you know, in their follicular phase, ovulation, luteal phase, do you change it at all? I do. I think in the follicular phase, when estradiol is predominating, and I'm oversimplifying, and I'm sure your guests get the day by day breakdown (laughs) of how things go. But in a traditional 28 day cycle, I like women to push the fasting lever in the first two weeks when estrogen is predominant, then ovulation things you can continue with what you're doing. But as you head into that luteal phase and progesterone is predominating, And especially the last five to seven days, I really recommend that women adjust their fasting so that they're maybe doing 12 or 13 hours, which I think of more as digestive rest. It's also a time you can integrate about 100, 150 150 calories worth of extra carbohydrate, but not the crappy kind, not the cookies and pastries and things like that. But maybe you're having half of... (laughs) When you crave it most. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. Just kind of leaning into what your body is telling you. But I think when women are still fasting, there's definitely the distinction if you're under 35 and you're lean, you should not be fasting regularly. You just don't have the added bandwidth. Now, the average woman under 35, yes, you can fast the first two weeks of your cycle, should be able to do that. You can also push the envelope with exercise and things like that. Perimenopause is is a a different timeframe because we're having these 
loss of progesterone and generally this estrogen dominant state, which can mitigate a lot of symptoms that people experience. And so it goes back to those lifestyle things. What's your sleep like? What's your stress management? Are you over-exercising? Are you consuming anti-inflammatory nutrition? And ladies, I hate to say this, there's a lot of fun foods that are full of inflammatory ingredients. And so gluten and dairy are two big ones. Alcohol is another one. I remind people that alcohol is processed as a toxin first. And secondarily, we know it suppresses melatonin, increases cortisol. So maybe you fall asleep, but you're not going to stay asleep. So really looking at those variables and deciding how well am I taking care of myself? And am I in a position where I can add intermittent fasting as another stress to what's going on? I find for most perimenopausal women who are still getting a menstrual cycle, first two weeks, no problems. Luteal phase can be more challenging, especially if they're not, they might be in a position where they could warrant even transdermal progesterone. But if they're really, if their sleep is really deteriorates the week before their menstrual cycle, you absolutely positively do not want to be adding that in. These are also usually the women who get offered things like anti-anxiety agents and antidepressants when maybe what they need is a, is a scooch of progesterone and they might be able to sleep better. And then the 12 months without a menstrual cycle, menopausal women have a lot more flexibility. And I think that's an important distinction to make. I don't ever consider women to be many men by any estimation, but menopausal women and men have a bit more, have a bit, a bit less hormonal flux day to day, week to week. And so they get a little bit more flexibility and how they can fast. But I think for most other women observing that the week before your menstrual cycle, you want to avoid fasting is really important. And I get, I'm sure you get this question. I get the question of, I'm trying to push it. Carrie, it's, I'm, it's PMS week. And I feel like I'm trying to push to get to whatever it is, 15 hours, mm-hmm. 16 hours. I'm like, stop, stop pushing. Don't mm-hmm. stop stressing yourself out. It's your physiology is completely changed from what it was two weeks ago. It's ease out of the intermittent fasting. Exactly. And then you can ease in when your period comes. Exactly. That's okay. That's okay. And I think it's important for people to understand that if you, if you want to fast successfully as a cycling female, you just understand that you don't do the same exercise week to week. You don't do the same fasting schedule week to week. And I think when people honor their physiology, it all of a sudden makes things a whole lot easier. Like I wish I knew, I know more about the menstrual cycle now than I ever did before. And it makes me so mad. I'm like, why didn't I learn these things in school? (laughs) My nursing friends and I always talk about that. We're like, how do we know more now? Like, does that make any sense whatsoever? And we're like, no, absolutely not. Having said that, I do think it's important for women to really, to not feel like they have to make excuses for being a female. Mm -hmm. I think our distinctive physiology is what's beautiful and we just have to lean into it. Like it's really our superpower if we use it that way. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, before we bring up the book, because I do want to, of course, that book that's launching, I'm so excited. I do kind of want to rapid fire just some of the questions Mm -hmm. I've gotten about what breaks a fast. I And we see this a lot on, well, I'll just go through the questions because some I I think are pretty funny. So Mm -hmm. what breaks a fast? Does coffee break a fast? I think as a rule, no. However, there are people that coffee, whether it's the mold, the mycotoxins, or it just stresses your adrenals, there are people that can get an insulin response. So I think this is highly bio-individual. As a rule, no. I am a fan of people consuming polyphenol-rich compounds in a fasted state. So for the average person, no, but you do need to understand that I believe in a clean fast, which means the only thing that you can really add to coffee that's not going to break your fast 
are things like some people it's very bitter. So they want to add uh, high quality sea salt, like Redmond's oh, yeah. or they can add cinnamon, which helps with insulin sensitivity. Cause there's some people who are like, Oh my gosh, I can't go from having five cups of cream in my coffee and survive. But the answer is in most instances, no, but I have read some data that some people, because it stresses their adrenals, and this is where bioindividuality really rules. You have to be careful. If you suspect that you are getting a cortisol rise from the coffee and an indirectly a blood sugar response, and then indirectly an insulin response, you could always check with a glucometer and that would, or that might be a helpful way to investigate that. Or the people who have access to, or have been prescribed a continuous glucose monitor, the CGM, that's, I have seen just one-off data and people anecdotally posting their before and after mm-hmm. black coffee or tea or, or green tea or whatever it is to show if it does affect the glucose or mm-hmm. if it does not affect the glucose. So if somebody has access to that, that could be a nice little insight into their health. Yeah. So speaking of five cups of creamer, I have read <laughs> that it's interesting. I'm always like, who, you don't understand fasting, right? I will see posts that say if it's under 50 calories, it doesn't count. If it's under a hundred calories of creamer, it doesn't count. Those are the fit pros. I welcome those people when I see them eating grapes or nuts or whatever it is that they're eating. I'm like, hmm, if I were choosing to break my fast, it would not be with something like a grape. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If it's calorie, if it's caloric, then you are and especially something that when I see people, the instances of a hundred or, or 50 or hundred calories, it's like a food item they have to chew and swallow. So to me, you know, if you're having bitter tea or coffee, which is a negligible, if at all amount of calories is very different than chewing something, which is going to stimulate the cephalic phase insulin response. And for sure you're going to break fats and there's nothing wrong. If you need to break your fast early, by all means do it. But to sit back and say you haven't broken your fast, I think that's your kind of, it's like, you probably also believe that Santa Claus is real. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, what about uh, MCT oil, medium chain triglyceride oil? that's another one I see, of course, added to coffee on the regular. And then people say, no, no, it's fasting. Well, we know MCT oil is processed differently in the body. And so Mm -hmm. the research I have read is said to like one teaspoon will not break a fast. I think that the greater concern I always have is if you're a standard American diet, couch potato, and you're like, put the training wheels on because you're really struggling to get to 14 hours fasted, a fatty coffee, if you accept it for what it is, is probably fine. But if you have three teaspoons, and I see lots of guys that can do three teaspoons of MCT oil in their coffee, I'm like, if you're trying to change body composition, lose weight, this is like not the way to go about doing it. So I think Mm -hmm. it's always in the context of what are your goals and based on my research, like one teaspoon of MCT oil, but that's not generally a recommended practice because I like people to fast clean. Yeah. Now, if you say to someone like I'm fasting for like five days and putting one teaspoon of MCT oil in my coffee is going to allow me to fast longer. I mean, it's, again, it goes back to what are your goals? What are you looking to do? Uh, but I see a lot of people who, when they clean up their dirty fasting, all of a sudden they start getting the results that they want. And so I I think that distinction between clean versus dirty fasting is certainly an important one. And lastly, what about electrolytes? If they're unsweetened, they should not. Which is the big one, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And then people say, well, but stevia. And I'm like, I don't know about you. I love me some element electrolytes. Yeah. Same. But I don't drink them <laughs> when I'm in a fasted state because my body's smart enough to know when I put something sugary or sweet on my tongue, my body's going, we're getting fed. Like something's coming, something good is coming. But there are people that want to argue, like it's like the minutiae. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. yes, I know I'll, in a lab animal, stevia did not evoke an insulin response. However, 
my concern is that your body is now still anticipating that something is coming. So unsweetened electrolytes, you know, there's lots of great options that are out there. Element Redmond's, I have one that are really nice for people to try. And I always say, save the sweetened stuff for your fasting window. And I do prefer stevia over a lot of other sweeteners. If people are choosing to consume sweetened electrolytes during their feeding window, because of the negligible impact on blood sugar, as opposed to some of the artificial aspartame, sucralose, all those Mm -hmm. junky ones that are out there. Right. Right. And I have had, I very occasionally I have had somebody mostly again, because of that CGM, that continuous glucose monitor, because it was already on their arm, it was easy for them just to see if some of the, what stevia does to them Mm -hmm. and not everybody, definitely. Some people are like, it makes no difference. My blood sugar stays the exact same before and after. And I have had others who go, holy crap, Mm -hmm. it did bump up. Yeah, It did go up however many points that it was enough for them to think it wasn't like one or two points, but it was enough to be like, damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Bioindividuality rules. <laughs> I guess in bioindividuality. Yeah, absolutely. So that I love that. All right. So moving on, let's talk about your book. Yeah. Tell us all about your book. Yeah. It's like hard to believe it's here and coming to fruition. So intermittent fasting transformation is a book about, I think of it as the consummate book uh, written by a woman for women about fasting. And so I talk a little bit about my story and Mm -hmm. as I always say, trying to encourage people to not do what I was doing so they can save themselves the trouble of crashing into a wall in perimenopause. But I talk a lot about hormones. I know that's an area area near and dear to your heart. I talk about the physiology. I talk about the benefits. And then I dive into a 45-day program that I believe is the best program that's out there for women, really honoring our physiology. We spent a whole week cleaning things up, getting ready, restructuring your macros, because let's be honest, if you've been sugar burning for years and years and years and not efficient or metabolically flexible, it's going to require a little bit of prep work to be successful. And so we talk about restructuring macros, protein, fat, and carbs. We talk about lower carb and what that represents. And then we dive into the program and I teach you all the, what I consider to be the most important things. It's mindset. It's talking about physiology. It's talking about the who, what, where, when, and why. And then we have a whole week of challenges, which is really exciting because I'm a big believer that all of us need to be challenged Mm -hmm. one way or another. And so kind of teaching people about different types of fasting, different strategies for fasting, you know, the best practices. Obviously, I am a proponent of clean fasting because ultimately that will get you the best results as opposed to the dirty fasting, aka I'm going to consume 100 calories and it doesn't count. (laughs) And so the book is really written to be accessible Although the feedback I've been getting already from physicians like yourself and others is that it's a book that they can just hand to their patients and it's you know very easy to understand. And so that was the desire was to make it informative, but also accessible. It's not designed to be a textbook. It is designed to be an accessible book that people can use to really you know learn about this amazing strategy, which has gotten very popular, but is not new or novel. That's the truth. And where can people find it? Well, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble or Target and, or your local bookstore. I always recommend if you have a local bookstore that still has in-person books to obviously give them your business and up until publication. So the date it'll be published is March 15th. There are a bunch of bonuses, things that I think are really fantastic. There's a program called Clean in 14, which is a really great way to kind of rev up your results with IF45, which is the program in the book. We have some bonus recipes. And I forgot to mention that Beth Lipton wrote over 50 recipes that are delicious and like easy to put together with no weird ingredients. 
And then lastly, there's a masterclass with me that will come out on March 10th. So you have to actually purchase the book before March 15th to take advantage of the bonuses because they will go away on publication date. Okay. And what's the, uh, is there a website for the book? I forget to get that ahead of time. Yeah. So if you go to my website, www.cynthiatherlow.com, there's a little icon you can kick on it. It'll take you directly to the book. Perfect. Oh my gosh. This is amazing. Now this is the Root Cause Medicine podcast. So the very last question ever is, I'm all about practical and tactical, Mm -hmm. just like you are. And what are, other than buy the book, one or two things that you would like to leave listeners with around intermittent fasting and hormones, whether it's things they can do or concepts, things to keep in mind, empowerment things. What are one or two things that you just say all the time? Number one, you have to get high quality sleep. Like it's not a sexy topic, but seven, eight hours, high quality sleep. I don't care if you have an aura ring or a whoop or whatever, but you have to really prioritize sleep because sleep is so profoundly restorative. And if you need help with sleep, there are resources out there. I think a lot of women think it's normal to wake up between 2 and 4 a.m. every single day, not just when they're stressed. I would really encourage people to understand my kind of standard mantra is if I can't get you to sleep through the night, I can't get you to lose weight. So sometimes that's the carrot with which I incentivize people to really prioritize their sleep. Much like when our children are babies and we kind of set them up, there are these five things that happen that tell their body it's time for them to start gearing down. We have to do the same, whether that's blue blockers, magnesium soaks, whether that's taking things like GABA or L-theanine, listening to music, getting off electronics, really, really important. But sleep is foundational to our health. And without it, you're not going to be able to maximize your results. Number two, I would say is probably the need for electrolytes. Mm. I have so many people who think I'm kidding when I tell them that they need electrolytes. Well, most of us need electrolytes, period, but you add in fasting. And especially if you're eating lower carbohydrate and you're urinating out most of your sodium and your salt, this can mitigate a lot of very unpleasant side effects if you are new to fasting. And so electrolytes are critically important. There's lots of clean brands that are out there. I've named a couple during the podcast, but to have success with fasting, you have to utilize electrolytes. And that means even salting your food. I know salt has been demonized for years, but I love high quality sea salt and I have zero problems salting my food, (laughs) salting my food vigorously without any issues. And so those are the two things, sleep and salt are probably two big takeaways. I've really ramped up my electrolyte intake as well. I do electrolytes at some point in the morning. And generally at some point, usually when I work out. So regardless of my exercise, I will do electrolytes to kick off some point in the morning, depending on my fasting, intermittent fasting. And I will do it again in the day as well. And I agree. I have noticed a difference. And I do also, not an ad, but I do also love the element, which is L, literally the letters L-M-N-T. Yeah, it's so clever. We all call it element. I also use the Seeking Health, Dr. Ben Lynch's electrolytes as well, go back and forth. So this has been amazing. Cynthia, thank you so much. I highly encourage everyone to check out her website at CynthiaThurlow.com. Check her out on social media. She's a wealth of information. She's in her stories and she's given so much information away for free that you will learn a lot simply by following her day to day, but then get the book, buy the book. Like I said, I have the book and I have already been talking about it with colleagues and other people I know interested in fasting. And I know it will be one heck of a resource for them when it comes out. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I have one quick favor to ask before you go. 
If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? My whole goal is education. So positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing. I so appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next episode.